This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today, and we want to have a discussion related to your heart, heart disease, your cardiovascular system. We are delighted that we've got Dr. Carl Horton with us today. He's a cardiologist and with Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Cleburne. Dr. Horton, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, just for our listeners out there, you hear a lot about heart disease. How do you define heart disease and how does it affect one's body? Well, heart disease is a spectrum of several, uh, I mean, many different, several different disease processes. Uh, Kind of a simple way to think of it is, you know, usually us in in, in the cardiology field, we kind of break it down into three different components to make it easier for people to understand. Uh, You can either have a a pump problem, which is kind of like a a problem with the heart muscle itself. We kind of label that more as cardiomyopathy or congestive heart failure. We have the underlying disease process of the muscle, uh, an electrical problem, which is where you have arrhythmias of the heart, uh, where they can have things such as atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter, uh, or ventricular arrhythmias. And then the third kind of segment will be a plumbing problem. And that is usually people that have uh, underlying coronary artery disease or that can have acute heart attacks where they have issues with the blood flow to the heart muscle. So kind of think of it as a broad spectrum of you know, either a pump problem, electrical problem, or a plumbing problem. You know, when people have difficulty, obviously, if they're having severe chest pain or having a heart attack, they're going to seek medical treatment. But if you have some heart symptoms and it's affecting your body, when do you recommend people seek professional treatment? I think they should seek treatment right away. In some cases, if they have a really bad premature family history, then they actually need to maybe seek some treatment or screening prior to developing symptoms. But usually with your heart, you don't want to wait. Uh, So if you're having any unusual symptoms that are not normal for you, then you usually need to be evaluated, you know, as soon as possible. You know, as a physician in treating patients, and as, as people know, heart disease remains the number one killer of all Americans. We also know that African-Americans die from heart disease at a higher rate than other people. Are there social factors and health risk, in your opinion, that we have to factor into that outcome? Uh, there's definitely some social factors that, that, that play into that. I don't think we truly understand why uh, African-Americans die at a higher rate compared to other ethnicities. But certainly there's things that are prevalent in the African-American community that I think kind of trend those numbers in that way. You know, in general, African-Americans have more severe hypertension compared to other ethnicities. Also, there's a you know, lack of uh, access to health care in a lot of cases. Uh, and then I think also in terms of the stress that uh, African-Americans are under. You know, uh, so I think all those things play a role in terms of, um, you know, our death rates and and, and underlying heart disease for African-Americans. I know there's no magic cure to deal with the dilemma you just described. Do you have any thoughts or suggestions on possible solutions? Uh, I do have a, a few things. I think that, you know, as a group, 
African-Americans need to be more proactive with regards to their health care. So we have a lot of people that may have medical insurance, but do they actually go see a doctor on a regular basis? I think particularly for black men, uh, we need more black male doctors. So a lot of black men don't feel comfortable. They don't trust the healthcare system. And so they need more people who can relate to them, who understand their culture actually in the medical field. I have a lot of, you know, older black male patients and that is a, a key component. You know, they'll, they'll trust me where they won't trust someone else. And then I think the other thing is that we know that certain things are worse in our communities, such as, you know, rates of diabetes, hypertension, and uh, sometimes, particularly in black women, once they get older, obesity. And so we really need to focus on how can we kind of improve that. If we know that 33% of African Americans have high blood pressure, we need to definitely uh, begin screen for that earlier. If we know that we have higher rates of diabetes, we need to definitely focus on, you know, making sure that we adjust our diet accordingly. And then also in terms of weight, we need to work on diet and exercise in terms of trying to getting our BMI or weight down as a population. You know, you just touched on uh, diet, exercise. Are there other things for our listeners to comprehend in your professional opinion that they should be proactive to help prevent heart failure? I think for African-Americans, you know, usually the biggest cause of heart failure, I think nationally, is usually ischemic heart disease or coronary artery disease. So you have impeded, you know, oxygen to the heart muscle from severe blockage, and then the heart muscle gets weak, or somebody has a major heart attack, the heart muscle dies, and then the heart muscle gets weak. And African-Americans, usually the biggest cause is actually hypertension. So if you have uncontrolled hypertension for several years, the heart will actually remodel and dilate. And, and then it will not pump as well. So particularly in African-Americans, hypertension is usually the, the biggest issue. And so once the blood pressure is controlled, then you decrease the risk of developing hypertension and congestive heart failure from hypertension particularly. You know, for your patients that you do diagnose with heart disease, what are some of the different treatment options that you can offer? Well, I think there's a, a lot more treatments now compared to what we had in the past. And so it kind of depends on what area of heart disease that they have. Uh, certainly for people with um, electrical problems or arrhythmias of the heart, there's catheter ablations, which can be done for certain patients, which can actually cure them of their specific arrhythmia. Uh, with coronary artery disease or heart attacks, or uh, usually the, the death rate actually from those has, has improved uh, because of the improvements in uh, coronary stenting. And then we have newer technologies uh, such as artificial valves for those that are needed that are kind of less invasive. And so there's been a lot of uh, treatments that really have done a lot to improve the outcomes of our patients. And also some of the treatments really have the ones that are more minimally invasive. They improve the overall experience for the patient. So there's less pain involved, less shorter time of recovery. And so those things are very important. You know, you've done a great job of describing some of the current treatment. As you look to the future, are there other therapies you think coming down the road? Uh, I think there will be some more therapies in the future, um, particularly with regards to gene therapy, perhaps, and also looking more specific at uh, genomic-specific recommendations for patients based on their uh, genetic makeup. I think that's going to be the big way for healthcare in the future, not only for cardiology, but for other disease processes as well. To our listeners out there who may themselves have heart disease, they may be living with it, or they know of a friend or relative, if they took just certain pieces of information away from this discussion that they could share with others, regardless of their ethnicity, what would your wish that they would walk away with would be? 
Well, I think once they've been diagnosed with heart disease and they've received appropriate treatment, uh, then kind of the burden falls on the patient to do their part. And so that part is going to be, you know, modifying their diet if needed, exercising, taking their medications on a regular basis, and then also uh, getting regular follow-up with their physician. A lot of times we can, you know, fix the problem temporarily, but long-term it has to be a partnership with the patient. And they have to really uh, be proactive with their health care and take kind of a strong initiative in making sure that they stay healthy. Dr. Carl Horton talking to us about our hearts. He is a cardiologist at Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital down in Cleburne. Glad to have you on the show, and we are going to talk more about how we can keep our hearts healthy when we come back next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Stay with us. This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Carl Horton. He's a cardiologist with Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Cleburne, talking about the health of our hearts. Steve? Just out of curiosity, in the last 14 months, we all know we've been dealing with COVID. And many people have been afraid to go to their doctor or go to the hospital for fear of COVID. Have you seen COVID have a real negative impact on the treatment of your patients? I think there has been a negative impact in terms of patients seeking medical care when they should have uh, when they should have went to the emergency room or been seen by their physician. That's definitely uh, that's definitely fact. Uh, we we've had patients here in our practice here in Cleburne who definitely put off coming to the physician. And here in a rural area such as Cleburne, you know, we tried to do more telehealth for patients who didn't feel comfortable coming into the office. But you know, in the rural areas, you don't always have good Wi-Fi or good internet connections, and so that's also limited us here in Cleburne, particularly in this market. But we would say that in general, yes, the fear of COVID uh, has delayed patient care in terms of certain patients uh, waiting or not coming in as soon as they could. And certain issues, particularly like with heart attacks or strokes, I mean, those need to be seen as soon as possible. You cannot delay those. Uh, We have a saying in cardiology that time is muscle, and it's kind of the same saying goes for neurology. You know, time is brain. And so anytime there's a concern for possible stroke or possible heart attack, that you know, that cannot wait. Thomas always likes to ask a few questions, too. I do. Thanks, Steve. I wanted to ask you this. As a country, is the United States improving or regressing regarding general cardiovascular fitness and the health of our hearts? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that probably uh, we have made improvements in terms of therapies. So I think in terms of therapeutics, we've actually improved. But I think in terms of the uh, prevalence or the number of people that are going to have heart disease, we're actually losing ground. And the reason why I say that is because the rates of obesity and diabetes have been increasing. So I suspect our rates of heart disease are eventually going to catch up and increase. And you covered the other parlay of that that I wanted to ask you is, how are we doing as far as medical technology and care? I think our technology has actually, uh, it's been pretty good. I think the developments, there's been a lot of money um, putting cardiovascular research. And one of the things about cardiology is a very evidence-based field. So most of the therapies and uh, treatments in cardiology are usually very rigorously studied in randomized controlled trials. So that way you're not just usually treating patients uh, without known specific benefits for the patient. I was walking through a rather large grocery store the other day, and as I was walking through it, there was a section over on one wall that had the vegetables, and then there were 
aisle after aisle after aisle of packaged, processed, and frozen food. And then how many restaurants, you know, do we eat at? We rarely eat at home anymore. Even after COVID, we don't eat at home. We order it and maybe bring it home, but we don't eat at home. We don't prepare our own food from scratch. Is that a big part of the contributing factor? I do. I do believe that our diet and processed foods have contributed a lot to um, the development of heart disease and kind of our overall health, you know, and I think it really hasn't been appreciated and has probably been understudied. But I think those of us in the medical field who practice, we know this to be true. Somebody said that uh, now what happens at dinner time in most homes across America is mom will say it's time for dinner. And everybody runs in the garage and gets in the car. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I definitely think that is probably true, but it's also expensive to do that too. So like, you know, if you have a family, I have three kids that, you know, that uh, you can't be going out to eat too much. <laughs> so what about stress? COVID, like Steve just mentioned, we've had this enormous amount of stress that everybody's feeling. We're still feeling it. We want COVID to be gone, and it's not. How is that affecting people? Are you seeing more heart attacks because of that? You know, I don't know if that's actually been quantified. I would say in my practice, I won't say that I've been seeing more, but we definitely are seeing patients in the office and in the hospital who are stressed by COVID. And we've seen a lot of patients who are suffering with their mental health, depression, grieving, um, because they've had multiple family members or people that they know, uh, long-term friends who have died of COVID. And so that I would say we have seen. People will feel pain in their chest. They'll feel tightness. They'll feel tingling going down their left arm, across their abdomen, and they'll think they're having a heart attack, especially young people, folks in their 30s or, you know, 20s or whatever. What's the difference between other symptoms like their heart is fine, right? <laughs> their heart is young and strong and fine, and yet they're having similar symptoms or effects of a heart attack. How do you explain that to people? Well, sometimes it is psychosomatic. So they, they internalize stress and then it kind of comes out as chest pain or shortness of breath. So sometimes it is psychosomatic. Sometimes there actually is an underlying cause why they're having chest pain and they may think it's a heart attack related to a blood flow issue, but it's more acid reflux or it could be what we call uh, PBCs, which is premature beats to the heart where their heart kind of takes an extra beat or, or, or skips a beat. And then they, they feel that chest pain and think they're having a heart attack, but it's, it's more an electrical problem, not a plumbing problem. And then sometimes there's other things. Sometimes, you know, there's an excess of caffeine. They may be drinking energy drinks, monster drinks, bang. Uh, and then their heart gets irritable after uh, having a lot of caffeine. And so sometimes there's stimulants that patients ingest that uh, will also cause those type of symptoms. I work, You mentioned that. I worked with a trauma surgeon who drank about 10 of those things a day. I mean, he would operate <laughs> sometimes around the clock. What does that and guy's that, heart look like when he gets up to my age? Well, the thing is, some people can tolerate it. They're fine. But other people, if they do the same amount, I mean, they will literally be on the floor. <laughs> so it, it varies from patient to patient. You know, that's the thing that kind of makes it interesting. Some patients have a higher tolerance than others. It's just like with any other medication. Some patients, you give them a small dose of morphine, they do fine. Other patients give a small dose of morphine and they may be on the floor. So it's, it's based on your, your body chemistry, your body genetics. Okay, I'd like to hop over to something that I have. It's atrial fibrillation. I've had it since 2013. 
We also, a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, interviewed Mark Cuban, and Mark has had atrial fibrillation for about mm-hmm. 10 years, and he told us his story. Mm-hmm. It affects just under 3 million people in the United States alone, and it's one of the number one arrhythmias that people face after they turn 60, 70, and beyond. What do you tell people about arrhythmia and when their heart starts beating irregularly? It's scary. It can be very scary, and uh, it's, it's something that also sometimes can be very debilitating. You know, atrial fibrillation is one of those, it's the most common arrhythmia that we see, and you're right, it's very common, particularly when patients get past, I would say, 70 and above. And so it's a very common arrhythmia. What's different about atrial fibrillation is that you have a you know higher risk of stroke uh, with atrial fibrillation, and then also it puts patients at risk for developing congestive heart failure or what we would say in cardiology, a tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. And so the main thing with atrial fibrillation is reducing your risk for stroke uh, by taking appropriate medications such as blood thinners or anticoagulants if indicated, and then also making sure that your heart rate is controlled so that you won't develop congestive heart failure or cardiomyopathy from it. And depending on your age and underlying medical problems, then, you know, there's different therapies that can be can be utilized in different strategies. Uh, some patients, uh, if they're young, um, they may want to pursue uh, what's called a catheter ablation, which is usually recommended if you fail uh, medical therapy, where they go in and try to cure you of the atrial fibrillation by doing a procedure. Other patients can do well just on medications, and they may have to have their heart, what's called cardioverted, to kind of reset their heart to put it back in normal rhythm with the addition of medications to try to keep it in rhythm. And so it kind of depends on on where the patient is on their spectrum and how many other medical problems. But, you know, there are therapies that can be used, but it's it's a very common problem, and sometimes it's very hard to control. And some patients, if we can't really control them with medications and they're not really a candidate for an ablation, then a last uh, option for them is actually to have what's called an AV nodal ablation and put in a pacemaker, where basically when they have this uh, AV nodal ablation, it controls how fast the heart will go and, and it makes them dependent on the pacemaker, but it will prevent the heart rate from going too fast. And then we don't have the concern of dropping their heart rate too low with medications. So atrial fibrillation can be, at times it can be very complex and sometimes very hard to control. Pacemakers, is that not only to control the rhythm, but is a version of pacemaker also to gently bump your heart back into normal rhythm if you are trying to fibrillate? No, the pacemaker is specifically there to um, be sure that your heart rate uh, will either pace at a certain rhythm or or make sure it doesn't drop too low. So sometimes what happens is a patient may have atrial fibrillation. We put them on medications to slow the heart rate down. But sometimes when patients get older with those medications, even a small amount of the medication to slow the heart rate down, it'll drop too low. Let's say their heart rate with AFib is 130, 140. We put them on medications and then their heart rate will drop into the 30s or 40s. In that situation, they have tachy, what they call tachybrady syndrome, where it's harder to control their rate with medications. So then in that situation, sometimes a patient will get a pacemaker put in. If we just set that pacemaker at 60 beats per minute, as a default, when we put that patient back on medication to control the heart rate or control the AFib, it won't drop below 60. The pacemaker will kick in. So then the pacemaker is there as a backup. They don't use the pacemaker all the time. It's just there as a backup to pace the heart. That way we can control the AFib with uh, medications to slow the heart rate down. Dr. Carl Horton, he's a cardiologist with Texas Health Harris Methodist Hospital in Cleburne. Thank you for your thoughts on our heart. When we come back, John Barry, the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, talking about this pandemic next on The Human Side of Healthcare. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. And welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today. Thomas, this is going to be a real treat. We've got John Barry back. You know, we interviewed him last year at the height of this pandemic. Isn't it great to have him back to do a follow-up interview? Well, we've moved things forward, and I think we're ready for his perspective on the vaccinations and where we are with the pandemic, especially compared to 1918. And to our listeners, John M. Barry is the author of The Great Influenza and did a fantastic job of talking about the flu pandemic, especially as we look at 1918 and a few years after. John Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks. Pleasure to be back. You know, as you look at where we're at now in this COVID-19 pandemic, and we're not out of the woods yet, only about 50%, I think, of Americans have been vaccinated. Do you see any comparisons at this stage of the game versus when you studied the great influenza? There certainly are some similarities. One of the biggest differences between the two viruses, there are quite a few differences, but one of the biggest is duration. The influenza virus, would the second wave worldwide was probably only about 13, 14 weeks, and probably two-thirds of all the deaths in three waves occurred in that incredibly short period of time. In any particular city, it usually moved faster than that, probably about six to 10 weeks. And when it was over, it was, it was pretty much over. So our situation has been very different from that. We've had, uh, instead of waves, there's sort of been swells come and go, depending on what we've done with social distancing, opening, and so forth. But even if we had done nothing uh, to interfere with the spread of the virus, this thing would be in slow motion compared to 1918. So in, in that aspect of it, there are probably more differences than, than similarities. Of course, they did not have a vaccine back then. It was strictly herd immunity, period. And right now, of course, in addition to the number of people who are vaccinated, there are others who are not vaccinated who did uh, suffer some infection and have at least some natural immunity. John, from the beginning of 1918 all the way to when it was gone, how long a period of time? Well, the, the first wave, which was very hit or miss, a lot of places didn't see any influenza. That, that was in the spring of 1918. And it seemed to almost disappear entirely. Then mid-September, it returned. By mid-December, with the exception of Australia, it was gone. Australia put off the second wave because they had a pretty strict quarantine, which wasn't broken until January 1919. So then the second wave disappeared, and then you had a third wave and that began in March of 1919, which was also hit or miss. Uh, one of the interest, interesting things about it uh, was the development of variants. But it then picked up a lot of better transmissibility. And when it became more transmissible, it also became much, 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 much more lethal. However, there had been no evolutionary pressure on the virus in the first wave natural immunity because not that many people got infected and if you were sick in the first wave you had up to a 94 percent protection against death in the second wave so that's a better result than 
any modern influenza vaccine we've ever developed. The second wave penetrated everywhere. That did put evolutionary pressure on the virus to escape immunity. And it did that. And the third wave, uh, if you were sick in either the first wave or the second wave, that didn't give you any protection against illness in the third wave. Uh, kind of interesting how those variants emerged uh, between the, the 1918 virus and, and uh, SARS-CoV-2 is the duration. Everything about influenza is faster, including the mutation rate. So SARS-CoV-2 mutates much, much more slowly than influenza. Uh, we have seen variants emerge, obviously. That, that there is uh, some indication that some of them are somewhat more dangerous than their predecessor, but not dramatically so. They are more transmissible. Um, but we haven't really seen the kind of lethal variant emerge that we saw in 1918, and hopefully we never will. You know, you uh, mentioned in your book about five pandemics and you started with 1889 and went up through, at that time, 2009. You indicated one common denominator is all five of those pandemics had come in waves. You mentioned earlier that COVID-19 was more in swells. Can you kind of compare and contrast the waves and the swells in those pandemics you mentioned? Uh, well, yeah, I think in, SAR, in SARS-CoV-2, you know, our efforts to prevent transmission, which I strongly approve of, I regret we didn't do that more aggressively. Uh, you know, we did that to save lives. And I think we saved in the United States hundreds of thousands of lives. But slowing the transmission of the virus prevented the development of herd immunity. And that meant as you open things up, you would get the virus coming back. Then you close things down and it goes away. You open things up. It's kind of like an accordion. They did use, you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions, closing orders and so forth in 1918. And they had some effect. But again, the, they didn't employ them to the extent that we did uh, this time around. So I think the, the swells, which I referred to, are probably more a function of our attempts to prevent transmission than they are in the natural cycle of the virus. You know, you mentioned non-pharmaceutical interventions, and they were done back in 1918, but probably, as you indicated, not as quite as effective as today. Do you think we could have done a better job in this pandemic on our non-pharmaceutical interventions? Yeah, I think there's no question. You look around the world at some of the countries uh, that have handled these disease, and it's extraordinary how successful they were. You know, uh, Vietnam has 35 deaths. That's almost 100 million people in that country, 35 deaths. Uh, now, Vietnam did things that would never be acceptable in the United States. You know, they're a communist country, and they can compel. But Australia is a Western country. Back much of Australia has often been compared to Texas, culturally. You know, very individualistic, very Western. And Australia has 909 deaths. If you adjust for population, that would be the equivalent of 12,000 deaths in the United States. We have almost 600,000 as, as we speak. Australia did it right, and the death toll reflects that. So certainly there's, there's no question that we could have done a much, much, much better job in the United States. Politics intervened uh, to an extraordinary 
amount and astound. I mean, Deborah Burks, you know, the head of the White House task force, has I think said that, you know, she thought maybe a couple hundred thousand deaths would have been unavoidable in the United States, but beyond that, uh, it shouldn't have happened. If we had been really aggressive and really on top of it, the way places like Australia were, we could have done a lot better than a couple hundred thousand. And we are, you know, right at 600,000 now. Correct. Uh, you know, and it was fascinating as I read your book, even back in 1919, they canceled the Stanley Cup finals. So I know right. people today get frustrated, but even back in 1919, they had to do those types of measures. You mentioned in your book that surveillance is so important, and the World Health Organization, at the time you were writing your book, was doing a pretty good job on surveillance. How are we now in 2021, not only as the United States, but in the entire world, are we doing enough on surveillance? No, and I'm not sure that I said they were doing a pretty good job when I wrote the book. I think they were trying hard. They were trying to build networks. Um, there were still quite a few countries uh, that weren't covered in the network. And there were large parts of countries that were covered that uh, in the country was covered, but large parts of the country was not covered in the surveillance. Uh, so there were a lot of gaps where they didn't have the gaps, I think they were doing a good job. The whole infrastructure was set up to look for another influenza virus because that was the great concern of the influenza pandemic. Obviously, this is not an influenza virus, it's a coronavirus, but the same infrastructure was in place. You know, clearly that has to improve. Both the surveillance of potential so-called spillovers from animals to humans and the ability of the scientific community to get into a country and find out what's going on. China was a lot better this time around than they were when the first SARS erupted in late 2002. But they obviously were not really good. You know, the funny thing is, in terms of influenza surveillance, you know, we were so worried about bird flu, H5N1 or H7N9 jumping species to humans and causing a really deadly pandemic. And China has been quite cooperative on influenza viruses. They had improved dramatically since the first SARS episode. So it's kind of puzzling why this time around they have not been nearly as cooperative as they had been for bird flu. You know, politics again intrudes. Will a sovereign nation allow the World Health Organization to send scientists in, essentially, its will? I don't know. If, if we would do that, uh, I hope we would. You know, that's really the key to surveillance, is getting scientists on the ground very early in an outbreak to figure out what's going on. This is author John Barry. He wrote the book, The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. It went all the way to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. When we come back, we ask him if we will ever tap this down, or is this just something that cycles and we live with, just like the flu? We also ask about its origin. Was it in a lab or not? And viruses as bioweapons. John Barry's thoughts on that next on The Human Side of Healthcare. 
covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're rolling straight on with our interview with John Barry, who wrote The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, a number one New York Times bestseller. Let me ask you this. We hear a lot about herd immunity, and for our listeners, herd immunity essentially is people that have been infected with the virus plus vaccinated people. You hear all kinds of percentages, 75%, 80%, 90% is what you need for herd immunity. In your opinion, is herd immunity just something we've got to do worldwide? For example, here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we've got two international airports. It seems to me we could achieve herd immunity, but we're only one plane flight away from a new variant coming. How how do you think we should really think about herd immunity? Well, the first thing is that herd immunity doesn't really mean immunity. Uh, So it's a bit of a misnomer. This virus is never going to go away, I don't think. There are always going to be a reservoir of people who either don't develop immunity or who don't get vaccinated. Then, then there's back and forth between humans and other mammals. Uh, so even if we could, I think it's inconceivable that we exterminate from humans, but it would still be sitting in other mammals just waiting to come back. So it's always going to circulate at best at a low level. But if we protect the world, the world gets vaccinated, then that cuts down the opportunity for the virus to develop a really nasty variant that escapes the vaccines. We want to avoid that chance that the nasty variant, either more virulent or one that escapes the vaccine, we want to avoid the chance for that to develop. And the only way to do that is to protect the rest of the world. Without being political, I just want your opinion on something. Do you have thoughts related to vaccine passports? Yeah, I think they're a very good idea, and I'd love to see them in place in theory. But you say without being political, and you can't avoid the politics. I think it would cause in the United States so much political turmoil that it's not worth doing. Uh, There are other countries where I think it would work very well. Again, in principle, I think it's a good thing. But, you know, here it would just, the, the whole, the idea that public health has been so politicized is just, you know, abhorrent to me and almost incomprehensible to anybody who deals with public health. You know, there are always going to be decisions that you have to make weighing different things and trying to figure out what's better overall for the society. You know, but that's and I get that's a political decision, but you can make a political decision without politicizing it. It's again, what's happened in the past year and a half is off the scale and and just crazy. You were talking about China's cooperation and then contrasting it to lack of cooperation with COVID-19. Does that give any indication that this might have come from a lab versus a market? And if so, does it really matter now or not? Well, it does make you wonder. I think the evidence still weighs pretty heavily that it was natural as opposed to from the laboratory. But 
it, it does make you wonder. In terms of whether it matters, yeah, it matters, largely because of, you know, the precedent it sets. You know, the research they were doing on, or anybody who's doing on, on viruses, you need to be careful. I mean, we do need to do the research. We need to protect ourselves. And the only way we can protect ourselves is to look at the virus in the laboratory, not only this virus, but other viruses. You know, they're all, there are many, many that are threats to human life. And if we don't investigate them, we are just leaving ourselves vulnerable. So the research has to go forward, but they need to adhere to safety precautions. Uh, there are various levels, you know, it's called biosafety level, BSL. Two isn't much, BSL-3. I've been in BSL-3 labs here. They're pretty careful. Uh, and then there's a BSL-4, which is even even more stringent than BSL-3. But, you know, humans tend to get sloppy and just need to be more careful, I think, and just figure out exactly what the benefit would be to each potential experiment and be absolutely rigid in enforcing uh, safety protocols and so forth. I think the world will be more aware of that. You know, as I say, I think it's still odds are that this was a natural spillover event, not a laboratory release, an accidental release. I don't think anybody's thinking it was done on purpose. You know, it's like uh, Samuel Johnson said uh, a couple hundred years ago, the hanging in the morning concentrates the mind. You know, we're looking at the hanging in the morning uh, and we need to focus on this stuff and, and rethink, make sure that when we do conduct these experiments, that what we're going to learn from them is worth the potential risk. Well, and that brings up a great point that I'm sure was not around in 1918 and 19, and that is the use of bioweapons. And you think about what you were saying just ticks on one side of the sinister side of our society now, which we know that computer viruses are put into various systems basically for sport. And we just saw this hacking of the colonial pipeline that had catastrophic effects on oil supply. And now we have people who could look at this as a potential bioweapon. And with all of this gain of function and other viral testing, are we really messing with dynamite here? Yeah, it's potentially scary, frankly. Yeah. You'd have to be pretty crazy to do it because you don't really know what the virus is going to do once it's released. And there's really no way to protect, say, your own population from it if it's released. But there are crazy people. And frankly, the technology is not that difficult to master. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's certainly something you need to worry about. I hate to say that. That really is sobering information you just gave us. And it really dovetails nicely at the end of your book. You said the final lesson of 1918 was people that occupy positions of authority need to lessen the panic that can alienate within a society. And society cannot function every man for himself. Great advice. Is there any takeaway that you see already in this current pandemic would be things that you would like people to know? Well, we've talked about some of them. I think if you look around the world and see who's done better and who's done worse and, and just look at the facts, I think we'd be in a better position to make decisions here. Um, for example, the idea of herd immunity 
Sweden never publicly admitted that that was their policy, but in effect it was. And a lot of people were, were talking about, well, why don't we do what Sweden was doing? And it turns out Sweden's experiment has demonstrated that pursuing that policy is a terrible idea. Their deaths are six to 11 times the deaths of their neighbors, you know, Finland, Norway, and Denmark. And their economy has not performed any better than Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. So they paid a high price in deaths, many times the deaths of their neighbors, and didn't gain anything economically. I think the economy and public health, as I said in an op-ed last year, they're, they're, they're dance partners. But public health takes the lead that the economy comes back when you solve the public health problem. You know, that, that doesn't mean that you close everything down if you have one death. No, I'm not saying that. But you know, we weren't talking about one death here. We're talking about many, and, and I mean, hundreds of thousands. Uh, it's, uh, again, I'm, I'm struggling for words. Is everybody in public health, I think, is, is you know, certainly a consensus view, almost a unanimous view, uh, that we did not handle this well. Uh, we should have hundreds of thousands of Americans alive who are dead. And I think everybody, in, it's, it's infuriating and tragic. Author John Barry, the author of The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, with his thoughts on where we are now with COVID-19. Steve? What an incredible show. Really fascinating to talk to John Barry. He's right. We're not out of the woods yet. We still got 300 patients in our hospitals with COVID-19. So we've got to all work together, and together we will beat covid Thanks for being with us today, and we're going to see you next week.